I am not going to have a normal life. I know that my schooling and my education and my middle-class bourgeois background wants me to have a safe job and a career and a mortgage. I refuse to do that. I want to have a meaningful life. And that meant for me, even then, I want to do what my ancestors did. I want to grow food on the land. I want to get to know my culture. I want to be rooted in something. That was the voice of Monica Morgan, the most deeply rooted Irishman I know. And I'm Martin Nutty. And this is Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Martin Nutty, and welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. And this evening, or today, you just have me and not my co-host, John Lee, who unfortunately is indisposed. But um, we have an interesting episode coming up, and in introducing my next guest, I would describe him as a passionate advocate for both the language and the culture of Ireland. He's a journalist a frequent contributor to the Irish Times, a presenter of travel documentaries, a playwright, a performer, an author whose writing spans multiple genres, from travel books to novels to expositions on Irish culture in both Irish and English. His most recent work is titled Listen to the Land Speak, A Journey to the Wisdom That Lies Beneath Us. He is, however, in my view, the most rooted Irishman that I know. Monaghan, ta falta rot, go diem pod creole. Am a vila buetas martin, I shall co dasavet kindlat. It's so lovely to be talking to you now. I'm going to start off with something uh, a little different. In the morning, hopefully the sun comes up and you'll step outside your door. Tell me what you see, what you hear. Uh, so I'm living in the Midlands of Ireland. So around me, on three sides of me, is woodland that I would have planted about uh, 25 years ago. It's oak woodland with a bit of Scots pine, which is the only conifer we had before the Ice Age, uh, and a bit of larch, European larch, which obviously is a great tree for making boats. Um, it's got good resin in it. So that's on one side. And behind me, the, the, this woodland, that's only on six acres, it's going up uh, Drumlin. So I bought 10 acres of land. Most of it is, is, is in the Drumlin. In other words, a gravel mound was left by the ice sheet when it was retreating over this land 13,000 years ago, 12, maybe 1,000 years ago. And just to two fields of me, from me to the, um, to the south is um, Loch Lane, a lake that normally I'd swim in um, summer and winter, although this winter I haven't. And then right in front of me, is is the road but well there's a field before between me and the road and there's a little it looks it's a pond it looks like a, a pool of primordial sludge but it was a pond i hollowed out when i built my little house here in um 2002 i wanted there's a permaculture idea that you have a little pool and it reflects the winter sun and just to my left 
to the east of me are three beehives that I have. And to the west of me, actually, no, more to the southwest is a polytunnel where I have my vegetables. And then all my vegetable beds are on the way up to the polytunnel. And there's about 14 solar panels beside, beside that too. So you are in, I guess, American parlance, living a homestead life. Would that be a fair description? To a degree. I mean, clearly I do. I'm not self-sufficient in any way. I depend on, on, um, on shops and markets for things. But no, most of my food would. I have my, uh, my, my hens for my eggs. I have the, the bees for the honey. I have um, some years I have pigs. So I haven't had them for the last two years. Um, and then I've yeah I, I probably have more than enough vegetables that I need and I don't really eat meat so um, yeah I am although my life has got busier over the last two years really since the um, the, the book um, that I wrote about the, the Irish language and it, that means that like last March I was touring all over America in fact didn't I think I met you there no I met you in the autumn in the states but I was in I was in New York um, and touring all over all over America last March. And again, now next month, I'm going away in about two weeks to Australia. And then next year, I'm going to be touring with my book again in Australia and Britain. So in March and April, as you know, is the key time if you're trying to get vegetables into the ground and seeds into the ground. So I don't have quite the range of fruit and vegetables as I, I used to. But there's all those reliable, all the apple trees, the plum, the pear trees, all my nut trees, all the vegetables that are easy to plant. I still have those. It sounds like a lot of work. And somewhat idyllic, depending on your perspective, <laughs> you know. Well done. You summed it up exactly as both. Yeah. Um, it, 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 because I spend a lot of time on the computer. So it's just so grounding. It's so important for me that I do have that three hours every afternoon um, in the garden. And I used to cycle or I used to walk every afternoon. But the minute I started growing my own food, which is probably, I don't know, 12 years ago now, I, you know, I gave up all the all the cycling. There's no, I will never get through all the work that's to be done on this 10 acres, ever. Like I'm only touching the surface of it. Um, and it's a lovely feeling to know that there's always work to do and it always brings rewards. So uh, you mentioned your book and we're going to get into that at some point. But what I want to do is just um, dial things or roll things back a bit. I want to talk a bit about your family. You have an O'Rahilly side to your family very accomplished people. And I think you've said there was two types, revolutionaries and intellectuals. And it stretches mm. back as far as I know to your four times great grand uncle, Aegon O'Rahilly. You have the O'Rahilly who died in 1916. I think his name was Michael Joseph. Uh, your grandmother, Sheila Humphreys, who was an, an O'Rahilly as well. Uh, she was a Gwailgor and a hardcore um, supporter of the the Republican movement. Talk to me about the burden and the legacy of that winter, to use an Irish word, and your people. Yeah, I mean, you summed it up beautifully there, Martin, and you've done all the research. Um, so, yeah, I did, I had a chat with um, an Aboriginal elder just a few days ago, Tyson Yunkaporte. He's got a book out at the moment called Sand Talk, a very influential book. I think it's subtitled, What Indigenous People Can Teach the World or How They Could Save the World. And he said, Mankan, he said, you have lineage. You know, there's people who've had to learn, relearn the stuff that they were deprived of 
you know, that whole generation of knowledge was wiped out. And he said, you're, for, you're very fortunate that you have this lineage. It's kept alive. And I do feel very lucky that, um, as you said, Aegon O'Reilly, the last poet of the old bardic school, of the old poetry school, that was almost a, a hangover of the Druidic um, learning rituals, the school of learning how to be a Druid over decades. And the poets in Ireland had that same thing. They took like 20 years and more to learn their skill and their craft. And Aegon O'Reilly was the last of that bardic school of, Druid, of, 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 of traditional Gaelic poets. So he was born in 1670. He died in 1740. Um, and that was, you know, that was the 18th century. Penal laws came in. Britain finally managed to crush the Gaelic culture for 100, 150 years. The famine, you know, wiped out so much of it in the 19th century. But then those, his, gener- his, his ancestors, Aegon O'Reilly, but in all, all of Ireland, the ancestors of those Gaelic chiefs and lords and poets and artists decided they would try and re- create this um, revival, Celtic Gaelic revival in the late 19th century. And so the O'Reilly's, my ancestors, were again involved in that. They went and found the old manuscripts, the old myths and stories and legends in the old manuscripts, often in monasteries or otherwise in the Anglo-Irish houses or the museums where they've been put in for safeguarding. And they translated them into Irish. And these were the more academic um, O'Reilly's, the likes of T.F. O'Reilly, the great Gaelic scholar, and Cecil O'Reilly, who were my relations. I knew Cecil well when I was um, when I was growing up in the 70s. T.F. O'Reilly, the great scholar who did so much research on the old manuscripts, he, he had died. But... Um, <clears throat> And then, so that, that's, but as you said, there was that side keeping that lore alive. And then the other side of it, in other words, TF and TF O'Reilly and Cecil O'Reilly's first cousins, my great grand uncle, Michael O'Reilly, who decided, no, we need to fight. And so I got all that culture. I got that language. I got that sense of lineage. But I was also, you know, brought up in a family with my grandmother who still believed in, um, the need sometimes for violence. And she was a supporter of the IRA in, in, in Belfast. Um, I mean, not, a, not an outright active supporter, but she had great sympathies and she would was regularly in contact with IRA um, hunger strikers in, in the prisons. So for me, being brought up in the 70s, when the, I didn't see the fighting, like she had to learn how to shoot and how to work a bayonet. And she was kicked down the stairs and slapped in the face and thrown around by British soldiers. Um, I never had any of that. Uh, there, there's a beautiful phrase that Ernie O'Malley says, you know, he's got a book, the great Republican fighter and rebel and leader, um, assistant chief of staff of the IRA in the 1920s. Ernie O'Reilly, Ernie O'Malley, he wrote a book on another man's wound. It's a, it's a part of a proverb. It's easy for one man to sleep on another man's wound. So I am sleeping on the wounds that my grandmother suffered and my great granduncle, like the O'Reilly, he sacrificed himself during the revolution in 1916. He left his four children and his pregnant wife, goodbye, left them alone, um, his heiress wife from Philadelphia, knowing he would never see the four sons again. He would never see the baby in his mother, in his wife's womb again. He decided this is worth it. I need to show blood sacrifice. I need to show, to do it, to be, to martyr myself so that the Irish people realize the importance of their independence. So I have that side, but yet me, by nature, I'm a pacifist and I'd be so much more in keeping with my, the other side of my family, my father's side, who are quiet, calm, pacifist um, dairy farmers from Longford. They never did anything (laughs) 
I was going to say they never did anything heroic, but they fed us. You know, they had a cattle farm and they grew They had a lot of other things. They had, you know, pigs and beef and sheep. Um, and during the famine in Longford, they would have produced a lot of food. And I hope they shared it with their neighbors. But there's those two sides in me. So understand your, your father's name was Michael, am I correct? And he was from Longford. Exactly. Michael McGann. That's right. Mm -hmm. He was the son of a farmer, of a quiet farmer, whose father was also a farmer. I think for, they moved into that area in Longford in the, about the 1830s from, uh, from Edgewoodstown, what used to be called Moss Trim. It's not too far from where you live now. So you've kind of come full circle, despite the fact that you uh, grew up in Dublin, spent lots of time with your O'Reilly family down in Kerry, and now you're back in the Midlands again. Uh, do you draw some comfort from that? Yes, you really well noticed. It was a conscious decision. You know, my, the O'Rahalys and my granny and all, they had such a strong influence on my life growing up. And I used to go and see the cell, the prison cell that my grandmother had spent so much time in, in Kilmainham Jail, you know, which is the second biggest tourist site in Dublin after the Guinness Hop Store. So her cell is still there with her graffiti on the walls. So it was a, it was a heady influence. You know, my granny lived with us and she taught me Irish. Um, and like during, I remember, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s, the likes of BBC would come and American researchers and um, German television crews. And it was up to me to sort of bring my, to accompany my granny on these film shoots as they would ask her what her memories were of fighting for freedom, of James Connolly, of Patrick Pierce, of Michael Collins. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a hefty legacy. And I then went off to escape all that. I traveled for many years in Africa and South America and India. But I came back and I realized, actually, I have a lot of time and a lot of respect for these quiet pacifist cousins uh, in the Midlands who never, who, never, um, who never demanded a lot of attention, who didn't do any egomaniacal sort of vainglorious fights, but they produced food. And I thought, I wanted to do that. So I reconnected with those. And then I realized, well, actually, land is available here and it's cheaper. So I was delighted to move where some of my McGann cousins were still were still nearby me in Westmeath, which, as you say, is just next door to Longford. So um, you just mentioned the fact that you went traveling. Uh, was mm -hmm. that, uh, like many people, I think, were not that much apart in terms of age. Ireland, I guess, of the 80s was not exactly the most liberating place at the time. And uh, I think your first big adventure was to go for an adventure in Africa. So you're quite right. Yeah, um, I went off to Africa. But as you said, there wasn't much stimul stimulus in Dublin in the 1980s, but also there wasn't much money. But fortunately, I had a bit of German. My granny insisted that I go to the Goethe Institute to learn German lessons outside school, mainly because she and her family had always learned French and German in case they needed to gun run. Well, not only in case, they did always need to run guns. So I think she wanted to make sure that I had that ability too. Um, and uh, so I had German. So I was able to work just in great big, you know, big hypermarkets and earn good money. And then I saw that there was a truck going from the oh, an ex-army, an ex-army British army truck, amusingly, going from London the whole way across Africa. And I decided I'd sign up for that and um, experience Africa. I thought for the first time I'd be with open-minded, adventurous people. It'd be just me and these 20 other people on this truck that we bought from the British army and we'd have a great fun. Um, as it turned out it was i mean i learned more on that trip than anything in my life it has set up my whole life 
but it was also pretty hectic. Like if you are driving through the Sahara Desert and then into West Africa to Togo and Benin and then into Niger and Nigeria and Cameroon and eventually into the Congo, into Zaire in, this is 1989, 1990, um, ending up in Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania over seven months, things will happen. And if they're going to happen anywhere, they will happen in deepest, darkest Africa, which is where mm-hmm. Conrad, Joseph Conrad experienced his experience and almost then redone by Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, and that was, you know, the the, the that was all the Congo. It was um, Zaire, and so did I had some hair raising adventures there, and I went without food and water for like eight or nine days. So it was the makings of me. It showed me a different world. So after that whole experience, it sounds like well, I always think that travel changes people. Um, I found that as a younger man myself, a simple one-week trip solo as an 18-year-old to Greece changed me dramatically. Uh, I can't imagine what the lessons learned were from that African trip. What did you take away from it beyond the fact that you actually survived? Hmm. The key thing is in the heightened time, that time where someone committed treachery on us, the owner of the truck, this woman, an English woman, and abandoned us to die, really, in the middle of the jungle. We, everything was stolen from us, all our money, our tablets, our passports, everything. We were left in this military dictatorship that was going bankrupt and didn't have a penny. We all got extremely sick. We got bilharzia, we got heat stroke, we got malaria. Um, and uh, we were left to die. That was after our eight days without food. And I never felt so alive. I never felt the world so vibrant. I never, I just felt the world is full of love. I am a spirit. I am the spirit in the human body and I've manifested here. And I just want to, I want to, I want to make the best of this life. I really felt, um, and not, you know, please help me God if I come out of this. No, actually there was the, those dark times was the most elated times. It's funny because my granny always says that the 33 days she spent on hunger strike was the highlight of her life. And the three years she spent in prison, you know, in and out of hunger strike at different times, but and in and out of the prisons were her highlight. There's things about, you know, extremes that make you realize what your priorities are and who you are in the world and who you want to be. So it set me up to thought, I am not going to have a normal life. I know that my schooling and my education and my middle-class bourgeois background wants me to have a safe job and a career and a mortgage. I refuse to do that. I want to have a meaningful life. And that meant for me, even then, I want to do what my ancestors did. I want to grow food on the land. I want to get to know my culture. I want to be rooted in something that is um, that has strong ores, or crana fertile is the Irish. Because... When I, saw, when I arrived in Morocco the first time and I saw people, men in the mountains, dressed in jalubas, dressed in the clothing that I had seen in the Bible stories, you know, from what I thought oh, existed 2,000 years ago, I thought, wait there, there are people living a sustainable, simple um, life that makes sense to me. I want to, to do my best to connect with that if I can. So did you feel, always feel kind of a bit disconnected from the Ireland that you grew up in, what you observed around you as a young person? I did, yeah. I mean, not only from Ireland, I felt disconnected from the world. There are these sort of over-idealistic dreamers, and that's sort of the person I was. I spent a lot of time in my own head, and I had these beautiful, loving, spiritual guides or voices or friends that would were inside my head, but just gave me so much 
love and encouragement and nourishment. And I could never find anything in the world that matched that. So I decided, okay, I just want to be on my own in nature with these inner voices because they were so beautiful. And I still have them. Uh, voices is the wrong thing. It's not like I, it's not like I hear something in my in my ears, but I'm aware of an energy that is beautiful. And uh, uh, the problem, my sort of person, people like me, you know, they don't tend to be to have close relationships in the real world because humans are so uh, compromised and so much more limited than that type of energetic, um, yeah, but, connection. Now, after Africa, you weren't done with wandering, though. Uh, it sounds like you still hadn't quite figured out, and I don't know if any of us ever fully figure out what we actually want. Um, although it seems like you've got a decent idea from my point of view. But you went wandering again. You went to South America. You went to India. You spent a lot of time in the Himalaya. Yeah. Well, I came back from Africa thinking, God, you know, I have seen different perspectives on the world and I know what I don't want anymore, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to realize what I wanted. I was still only 19. Well, I was probably 20 when I came back. And uh, I... So I promised my mom, my dad had died by then, but I promised my mom that I would, um, that uh, <laughs> it wasn't like my dad died when I was in Africa. That'd be mm. very tragic. He had died about six months before I left for Africa. So, um, but he, he had died. And so my mom, I promised her I'd finish college. And uh, he, um, and so I did. I went back and I did a degree in Irish and history in UCD and the university in Dublin. And that was, so it's been another two years, but I just felt so unmotivated by it. I just was so... I just find it so hard to connect with these kids, kids. What I just realized is you people, you've never experienced the world. Those things I'd seen in Africa changed me. Uh, you know, I mean, I felt alienated enough from people because of my own, these loving energies. And now having realized that there was a world out there of people living a life that hadn't changed for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, I felt I don't want to go back to this. So I managed to, yeah, when I came back from yeah. Africa. So. Yeah. So I came, so, you know, when I came back from Africa, I had, I, my, obviously my mind was, was, was opened and I, but I promised my mum that I'd go back to college, um, the, and to finish my degree. I did a degree in Irish and history. So I went back to UCD, university in Dublin and I did, but I find it even harder to connect with the, the other students there and with life in Dublin. So as soon as I had finished my degree, I wanted to get out into that real world that I'd experienced in Africa. So like, I didn't even wait around to to, uh, to, to collect my, my, my diploma or degree or to graduate. I just, the minute the last exam was, was finished, I fled to Africa. No, I probably know, I'm sorry, to South America. But what I did first, no, I would have fled to, for two months to Germany to earn some money in the hypermarket in Germany and then went straight to South America and uh, into Colombia and spend maybe six weeks there, slowly on my way going to Ecuador and Peru. But when I got to Ecuador, um, I got bitten by a dog with rabies. And so that really, again, another, what you could see as a calamity, but again, it was a key turning point in my life. I could no longer just wander like a backpacker from one pancake cafe to another in the Lonely Planet Guide. I had to settle down somewhere because I was given vaccines to, mm. to you know, to cure the, the rabies. And I ended up, I needed to settle down. So I mean, I needed a job and I ended up in... Vilcabamba, a valley of longevity on the Ecuadorian um, Peruvian border. And I was given a job of running an organic farm and a, and a hostel there. A hostel. Um, it was a hostel where people used to come to take the San Pedro cactus, a hallucinogenic cactus, which um, type of peyote type cactus. 
And um, so I would meet every day, I would meet people from all over the world, all of these free thinking, you know, dreamers and idealists. And for me, it was my university. The people I met, the idea, I learned about straw bale farming. I learned about permaculture. I learned about biodynamics. I learned so, I learned about, you know, um, uh, sort of enlightened sexuality. I learned about getting into the body. I learned about yoga and breathing. Um, so it opened my mind to so many things. Um, and I thought, okay, but I still haven't ready to go back to Ireland and buckle down. It was still so avian. Like after probably a year and a half in in Africa, in South America, I did go back to Ireland and I w- tried working on an organic farm in Wicklow. But I decided, no, I need to connect to my spirit even more deeper. And so that's what brought me to the Himalayas. It was almost a cliche. It's what these, you know, young idealistic dreamers and losers do. We go up to the Himalayas, but there's something, I don't know, is it the geology or the rocks or the electromagnetic frequencies of the Himalayas, but it makes you think clearer. It makes you be able to access parts of your mind and of other dimensions, perhaps, in a clearer way. So I really did get those spiritual um, insights that I was yearning. I got them up in the Himalayas and I thought, okay, I need to come down from here because by this stage I'd seen enough of enough um, expat Western dropouts who were certainly of an age and just looked like they were stuck and looked sad in the place. So I know I, I realised I am Irish. That's my roots. I need to go back to Ireland and find a way of living on the island that is meaningful for me but doesn't compromise me too much. So that's why I came back, bought my these ten acres in 1997, planted my woodland, which as I said is rising up behind me, and I've been here ever since. And that, as I understand it, lined up with the creation of what was then Tina G, which ultimately became uh, TG Cahar, the Irish language television station. And um, that provided some opportunities, along with your brother, Ruan, I believe. Is that correct? Oh, Martin, the research you've done, and you're, it's phenomenal, I tell you, your, <laughs> your, your, uh, yeah, your background knowledge. Exactly. So that was 1997, I bought the land, but 1996, the year before, was the year that, um, that TG Carr, or Television of as you say, as it found, was founded. And it was just because it was the Celtic Tiger years, Ireland was flush with money, and the Fianna Fáil government, with Michael D. Higgins in Labour at the time, our current Uchtaran, our current president, realised we now, if we don't, we need to at least make an effort to found an Irish language station because otherwise it's going to be on our watch, the death of the language. So they, they decided to set up a channel. And luckily, my brother, Ruan, he was in films at the time. He was locations manager on things like Far and Away. with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, yes. Ooh. Yeah, and the Michael Collins movie with uh, Liam Neeson and Devil's Own, a movie with Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. So he was locations manager and all of those, but he wanted to get into directing. And he thought an easy way to direct would be to start directing TV. And when he heard about this new TV channel, he decided, I'm going to direct for them. And he went straight to the offices in Galway and Connemara in Bailin the Howan. And he said to them, I'm going to make the very first ever Irish language television program for you. My brother, Rube Moncon, is going to present it. And so Ruan then came out to me in India um, uh, with a camera. Now, my mum actually forced him to come out first because she worried that I had gone too far into my own internal world and following my spiritual um, retreat up in the Himalayas. So, And she possibly was right. So she was begging my brother to come out and rescue me, his, the, my, her you know, over-idealistic youngest son. 
And uh, he just, my brother just saw me as a waster dropout, but at least he thought he could get some benefit if he could direct a TV series. And he came out with a very simple camera, one chip Sony DV camera. And we made a very simple, naive TV program, a TV series, well, two episodes of a TV series about India. And they were broadcast on the second ever day that TG Car was on air. I think the first day there was a movie with um, Gabriel Byrne. He was speaking Irish in it. And then the second day, my, there was a program about fishermen and trawlers. And then my program about being in India. And it was just me up in the Himalayas reflecting on my spiritual search and um, the people I was meeting. It was beautiful. It was a gorgeous, innocent program. Um, I think there's a bit of it up on YouTube. I hope on my probably YouTube channel, which is Mon Con McGann, I, I suppose, um, yeah, I think about a year ago I put up a little bit of it or the intro of it. Uh, and then my brother and I, like TGKR, liked it. I mean, they were still learning how to make TV programs, this new Irish language television channel. So they decided to let us have another go. And so the next year they sent us to South America because, of course, I knew South America pretty well at the time. And the year after that, we went to the Middle East, I think. And then we went to, no, we went to, yeah, and then we went to China. Um, and we kept on doing it for about another eight years. Every year we'd make a TV program. And TG Carr's logo at the time, or its motto was Sul Ella, the other eye, looking at things through a different perspective, which is what an old language allows you to do. And so we decided we'd do the same. And we would go to minority cultures all around the world, indigenous cultures who were trying to come to terms with the modern world. And we would, we would tell their stories. So we went to the Tarahumara in Mexico or the Yami people in Lanyu Island who live underground off on an island off Taiwan or the Bedouins or the Berbers or the Inuit people in Greenland. We went everywhere. So was it just you and your brother? that Was it, was it a crew of two the whole time or did it expand more? It expanded a little bit. So the, for the India program was me and my brother and South America was me and my brother. But at some point we were fighting so much that we both went to our mothers and we said, or our mother, and we said, um, no, mom, you've got to remind me I never want to go with my brother again. I said I never want to go with Ruan. Ruan said he never wanted to go filming with me. So we decided we'd bring another person with us to be a sort of a, an intermediary. And it was an old school friend of Ruan's who, who had this wonderful diplomatic way about him, Ronan, Ronan Coleman. And Ronan was an excellent musician. And, um, so, and, and he was very interested in producing music too. He and his family all produced for U2 over the years. So he brought great recording equipment out with him. And he would record the indigenous and the local musicians we we um, we met, and would also help with us recording sound. And he would get in the way of us when we would be arguing with each other. And he would he just was a beautiful balancing um, energy. And uh, yes, yeah, so that and it enriched the mu the programs because now we had this beautiful music. And he would compose a whole new. Uh, instrumental score for every TV series. So I meant the production values got increasingly strong and we were then able to, we would do an English and an Irish version. So every PTC, every piece of camera I did in Irish, I'd also do it in English. And then Ruan, my brother was able to remaster all of these or re-edit them into an English version that sold all around the world as part of the travel channel. And then the Irish version was for TG Carr for the Irish language TV station. So is that where you picked up, uh, I've noticed when you're speaking, you switch quite seamlessly between Irish and English, which strikes me as not being particularly easy to do. Mm. Um, is that part, uh, did that particular facility, was that a result of the standing in front of the camera and just say, okay, now I've got to do it in English. Okay, now I've got to do it Osquilga. No. 
That's a weird ability that I have just got two years ago. Now, for some people, it mightn't be a great ability or a skill, but it's for me, I'm not very eloquent in any language, believe me, unless I'm focusing. I mean, I'm now at the moment, you know, we're doing an interview, so I'm focusing, but I tend to drift. My mind is always somewhere else. So I would never be able to do this, you know, going sentence by sentence. I could now have this whole conversation, giving a sentence in Irish, translating into English. So about two years ago, as part of this a rising of passion and interest into the Irish language, which we'll probably deal with a bit later anyway. It came out of that. So um, I'm do- and now, as you said, so many people about two, two and a half years ago began to show an interest in the Irish language. And I could see that Irish wasn't a hindrance. Irish wasn't a negative thing. They wanted to connect more, but they didn't understand it. So I found myself giving these talks in Irish. And when I talked in Irish, I could see the fear and the discomfort in people's faces, but but also a yearning wish the people wish to understand it. So I started doing this thing of speaking Irish and English. And as you said, it surprises the hell out of me now uh, that I can do it because I'm not normally um, yeah, eloquent and um, agile in that my mind isn't normally. So I think you're talking about that uh, time when you were uh, making that uh, I think it's a three or four part series called No Berla, meaning no English, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to travel through Ireland in, let's say, places that do not traditionally use the language and attempting to transact, you know, that whole experience, Osquelga, so to speak. Um, and I was fascinated, you know, when you said you saw fear in people's eyes mm-hmm. when you started speaking Irish. So talk to me a bit about how you interpreted that. What was the insight there? Yeah. Um, So, you know, my grandmother, you know, devoted so much of her life to freedom, Irish freedom, but also the Irish language. And I would see when I was like, you know, six or seven or eight, we'd be in the shops and she'd never, she'd always speak Irish to everyone in the shops. And she'd always say, oh, everybody has some Irish. And I would see their discomfort, but she just really wanted to promote the Irish. And she only ever wore Irish clothes, Irish tweeds and linens and cottons. And mostly I only wear Irish tweeds as well. And but so did the O'Reilly. So did Aegon O'Reilly, or not Aegon, Michael O'Reilly, the leader of the volunteers, my great grand uncle. He always wore Irish tweeds. But, um, Anyway, so the Irish language she spoke. And so, you know, and we, she would, if we ever, if she ever heard us speak a word of English when we were young, she'd say, oh, manoid, manoid, manoid. She would felt such regret. So there was this big onus on us to speak Irish. And then I wanted to do things in Irish, you know, when I was young. So I wrote a book um, about my time in Africa. I remember when I was still in college, a book called Monachan e Shachron o Shanlari o Vlachliaga in Africa, so a book trying to, you know, follow this idea my granny had that we could help with the Irish language. And then all those programs my brother Ruan and I made. Um, and in fact, the first program we ever made, the one in India, it was paid for a bit by T.G. Carr, but actually Aegon, the O'Reilly's son, Aegon, another Aegon O'Reilly, um, you know, this is time in the 20th century, he, he paid money for it, wanting to keep that lineage alive. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, so my brother and I, those programs we did were high, they were high concept programs. <laughs> they were <clears throat> ethically and ethnically <clears throat> and culturally and intellectually very sophist- pretty sophisticated. 
Um, but then after about eight years or nine years, my brother and I stopped working for each other together. I mean, making the travel programs. And I started working with another director on this program, No Berla. And the idea was at the time I'd been living in West Kerry in the Gweltacht, in the Irish speaking area in West Kerry. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I tried living this life I am living in West Kerry outside of the Gweltacht. In other words, the life in West Kerry where everything I did in my daily life was through Irish language. I thought, how would that work in the rest of Ireland? So I pitched the idea to this other director, Brian Redden, and he loved it. And um, we eventually, TG, RTE commissioned it, RTE for TG Car, but the National Broadcaster commissioned it. And it was all hidden cameras. So I just went out into the streets in Dublin, first went to the map shop to see could I get a map. And then I, I went into a taxi to see could I go somewhere else. And everywhere I went, people either blocked their ears or told me to F off or just kicked me out. And I had no idea I'd, I'd, um, I'd encounter that sort of hostility. And as you said, it was only after a while that I realized it was when we brought all the footage back into the into the into the um, production, the edit suite, and I had the the seeing what what the the secret cameras had recorded and seeing in their eyes this incredibly rich um, connection of different emotions, um, you know, regret, envy, anger, jealousy, love, yearning. It's a national language. A mother tongue is a potent thing. Like if you put um, a baby seal among a whole beach of crying seals, or if you put a, a deer in front of a, you know, a whole field of fawns, the baby deer and the baby seal will recognize its mother's cry among all the other hundreds. A mother tongue is an umbilical bond. And that's what we have to the Irish language. No matter what we say, no matter what we, we might say, oh, the language is old fashioned or is beaten into me or I don't want it. But there's something really primal and powerful about a mother tongue. And it was only then, as I said, when I was looking into these people's eyes that I saw it. But like, I'm still seeing it. So that's why when I started again getting being, you know, being shown attention two years ago for the Irish language because of the, because of books this time rather than TV. And I see that same thing whenever I go into a room and speak Irish. People want to hear it, but they feel uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, it's complex. Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of different people around this particular issue. Uh, my older brother is a Gwailgar. Um He raised his uh, children in North County Dublin uh, in Irish. Mm. His wife spoke, spoke to them in English, and they're consequently bilingual. Um, and Great. his grasp of the language is far more sophisticated than mine. Um, living in New York is probably not the best environment to improve your Irish, mm -hmm. um, but there are opportunities. Um, but there is, in my view, um, many different reasons that you can point to as to why the Irish language collapsed. But let's talk about the most obvious one. Uh, and it's felt more, uh, the impact of it is felt more probably in New York than many other places. The famine. Um, the famine triggered immigration. There have been famines before, uh, you know, this horrendous great hunger of the uh, 1840s, um, but this time it was different, and it triggered a massive migration. And as I understand it, um, something like a quarter of the population in New York by 1851 or 1861 was actually Irish-born, and many of them actually didn't speak any English at all. And word filtered back that you needed to speak English, and that changed everything because a lot of people think, you know, the famine occurred, and then, you know, 
that big wave of immigration happened and then it stopped. But that's not really what happened. Immigration went on for a hundred years afterwards. And it, it felt like to me to, to immigrate, you had to be able to speak English and consequently you couldn't speak Irish. So why didn't the Irish embrace bilinguality, so to speak? Was it just they didn't understand? Yeah, it's all down, as you said, to when the way in Irish we call it, we don't call it the famine, but as you said, we call it the, the great hunger on Gurtu, on, 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 um, on Gurtu Moor, the big, the big hurt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like, cause we knew it wasn't a famine. It, had it been a famine, had there like, been a terrible drought or had there just been a disease on the, on the, on the, uh, plants. We thought, okay, this is a natural part of the process. All of our lives, like we've been farming on this island for thousands of years, we knew that there's years of of, um, of hardship, and you make it through. But this was, we could see that Ireland, the Irish soil, was producing more food than ever. We could see the amount of grain and beef and sheep and eels and oysters that were being um, exported from Ireland. So we could see there was plentiful food. So it was, as you know, academics are now saying, genocide. It wasn't genocide. It wasn't a, uh, a, a you know a, a planned idea to kill off Ireland by England, but it was genocide. In other words, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a laissez-faire. It was a letting back and see, let them die. Um, it's for our best, but we won't actively kill them all ourselves in gas chambers. So Ireland realised. Nothing is going to save us. We are in this grips of this colonial oppressor who has got stronger and stronger over the centuries to the point that they control everything. We are no longer masters of our own fate. So we can't, you know, just get our children through it or, you know, to, to teach them to, to, to arm themselves or to defend or to resist. We need to start another plan. And that was get them out of this country. Uh, it gets them out of rural Ireland particularly because there were still opportunities in the cities, in Kilkenny, in Belfast, in Dublin, in Cork, because the British, you know, wanted Ireland to be this little processing house for them, a place that produced profit. So there was jobs in all of that in the cities, but you had to have English. So it was just vital. You know, the land had let us down. We realized, you know, on the vegetable we want, the potato, it was producing, the land was producing everything else very well. We didn't have access to our seas, our coasts, which we always did, because either the landlords were controlling the coast or we were too poor. We'd had to give away the boat in the first few years when the crops had failed. So our only option was to ditch everything about our language and culture and take on this language that offered so much opportunity. As you said, a quarter of the people in New York, we knew there were people in Canada, in London, in New York, who would, in Boston, Chicago, who would give us, and Canada, who would give us um, shelter uh, if we went. And so it was a matter of great love by those parents to think, I am going to make sure my children don't have a word of Irish, they learn this new language and they are saved. It was a beautiful thing. It was a, it was a, a great thing. Like you know, often we think, uh, yeah, it was an act of self-sacrifice that we should honour them for. But to some degree, if you think about it, right, the Irish were victimised by colonialism, as expressed, you know, by the English government at the time, mm-hmm. and it's a capitulation, you know, to take on their language. Is there a shame component at play at this? Like you talk about, you know, people's shame and not being able to speak the language. Is there like some kind of like deep, almost DNA type shame about the loss of language? 
Yeah, definitely. There's definitely like, you know, these were people, or we were people who were so embedded with our culture. And the fact that we did feel we had to turn away from it and that we did turn away from it um, is a key or issue of shame. There's also the massive, you know, survivor's guilt, shame of the famine. We know every my family, the two sides of my family that survived the famine, you know, they did, they, they could have shared more. They, you know, I think there's this moral issue. Anyone who survived the famine, I mean, there was a few places that avoided the famine entirely. And you could have been in an area like in South Donegal for some reason, inland South Donegal. Didn't seem to have any famine whatsoever in Inver and north of um, Donegal town. But most places did. And so the likes of my family on both sides that, that not only survived it, but more or less came out, like a few people, the family died during the famine, but otherwise they came out. The, you know, there's questions to be asked. So no wonder you'd like to, you, we as the, the, the descendants would like to turn their minds from all that and just move on and start afresh. Yeah, it's very interesting when you, when you talk to um, a lot of descendants from Irish immigrants here, a lot of them don't know the backstory of their family. Now, these are people maybe, you know, three or four generations in, maybe five generations in. Literally, when people left Ireland, they turned their back on it. I wanted to forget about it. And it strikes me as the behavior of a people traumatized. There's a shame associated with, with it. And anybody that has been traumatized and shamed just wants to blot things out. Yeah, And I think that's what we're kind of seeing at play. And it's expressed in the language, but it's also expressed in the culture. Um, but I think this is where you're there's a realization or do you think there's a realization at this point that the Irish consider themselves to be a traumatized people across generationally traumatized people? I don't think the Irish had the luxury of thinking in these terms of psychology, psychology. I think mm -hmm. we were a people who survived. We were in survival mode. We've been in survival mode since the 19th century, possibly earlier, because there's some very bad, you know, famines and failure of the potato crop in the in the um, 18th century as well. So, you know, the colonizers had made us. We, we you know, during the penal laws, particularly, we weren't allowed own land. We weren't allowed own property. We weren't allowed owned chattels. We couldn't have a, a horse worth more than a five, than five pounds. So we had been systematically beaten down over, over you know, centuries, um, at least, you know, a century or two. And uh, so this idea of having time for reflection or for thinking, are we traumatized or not? <laughs> that's only a luxury that's only arising now, I believe, now. Um, because I, re I remember in the 80s, there was no jobs in Ireland in the 80s. You had to emigrate. Or that's, you know, I mean, definitely in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we emigrated still. So it was really only in the 1990s that Ireland became comfortable, that we had the time to reflect and to think back. As you say, the Irish diaspora, the Irish in America and Australia did have time. They were comfortable. They were wealthy after a while. They secured themselves after a generation or two. But like, who were they going to talk about that trauma to? They did not feel in any way close to the Irish, the people, their relations who they left in Ireland. The, the divide, the Irish relations didn't make them feel close, but also their experiences abroad, you know, distanced them from it. So there was definitely a camaraderie. You know, you'd know more about this than me, but in the Irish pubs, in the Irish bars, throughout Canada and the States and Australia, where people would talk. But I don't think there was the 
level of sophistication to talk about trauma. I might be wrong. I just think it was all masked by alcohol. And I think that's why I think that's why the world knows Ireland as drinkers. And I think the word that we say when we drink is slighter, health. Our only attempt to find that balance and that health and that um, convalescence is in, was in the pub. It was self-medication. Yeah, which kind of takes us to the point of your latest two books, um, 40 Words for Field and your book on the landscape. And they seem to have arrived at a very propitious time when people all of a sudden are starting to consider their Irishness. And I think some of that was triggered most likely by COVID uh, because you couldn't travel anymore. You couldn't even commute anymore in Ireland. Uh, and I think you mentioned uh, in some conversation uh, that your book, your first book, uh, 40 Words for Field, you expected or your publisher expected it to, you know, hey, we're going to print 5,000 and, you know, it'll really take about a year or so to, to sell that off if we're lucky. But that's not what happened. Can you talk a little bit about that experience, the surprise that it was associated with that and the success of that, you know, that book? Yeah. So it's like the chicken and egg. It's still hard. It'll probably be another few decades before we understood what happened or what is happening in Ireland now. But we've known the script of the Irish language and Irish culture for decades. You know, it's been a, a sort of a holy cow, a tokenistic element that we take out the few words of Irish now and then. We pretend we want to learn. We, we as John Waters, when he was still a great thinker for the Irish Times, said, like, parents will send their children to a Gwell school, to an Irish-speaking immersive school, on the thinking, claim, trying to claim that they want to, them to speak Irish. But at the back of their heads, any parent knows a kid will own, if, the, if, if Irish isn't the language of home, then the kid will not become comfortable or fluent in it. So the parent had two ways. They were able to say, oh, we're sending our children to the local Gwell school, but at the same time knowing, thank God, the child isn't going to get fluent in Irish because we're not going to speak it at home. So there was all these very complicated feelings about the language. And I said, it seems to me that all of that changed two and a half, three years ago. Um, and we could, you, you know, you mentioned COVID is a very possible call, one root cause for it. But I think maybe it's something bigger again, maybe, and I've no proof for this, that there's an energy rising up among peoples, among the peoples of the world who have, uh, who have rootedness, who have um, ancestors, which is actually every race in the world has a rootedness somewhere and an ancestry. Um, and particularly the people who, for whom that culture was very strong, the Italians, the Irish, um, Egyptians, so many people, there is this feeling, I want to reconnect with who I am in a world where the economic system is looks like it's crumbling. The environmental system is the the weather system. The um, so many of our holy cows, religion and banks, is all looking weaker. And so we want something strong. And in Ireland, it seems to be going back to this culture. And so, as you said, my book Thirty Two Words for Field happened to come out just at this time, where on top of all this uncertainty was the new extra uncertainty of COVID. Um, and as you say, my publisher is a very experienced publisher. They knew how many books it was going to sell, and it sold. What well, it's now sold well over ninety thousand copies. That only in Ireland. That's a book about the Irish language. That never happened. It would never happen again. But there's something um, in the waters. There's something arising from the land. And it's hard for me to know exactly what it is. In a way, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm so biased. Like I'm at the I'm at the core of this, almost the ground zero of it. So I have people emailing me, people contacting me every day, numerous times a day saying, 
I want to do this night. I want to do this. I feel this. Something powerful is underway. And as I said, it's too near for me, too close for me to exactly describe what it is, but it's exciting. So first of all, I've got to apologize for uh, uh, misquoting the title to your book. It's obviously 32 words for field, and I seem to have been hung up on the number 40. Uh, (laughs) And numerology, you know, uh, is something that clearly comes through your books. You know, the various numbers uh, are are somewhat sacred. Uh, We see threes and sevens reoccurring all the time, it seems, uh, in the Irish language. Oh, I know. You were quite right about 40, because mm-hmm. I say, I, I do have 40 words for fields. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the publisher decided to call it 32 words. I, I don't know, was it because of 32 counties or something? But actually, that's right. I see exactly where you were getting, that you were actually more correct than the publisher was. I was peering into your mind, God help you, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I'm glad we're aligned on numerology, uh, since we uh, now consider the, the number of 40 sacred and crops up quite frequently in the Bible, right? 40 days and 40 nights. Moses wandering in the desert for 40 years, et cetera, et cetera. But I just finished reading uh, Listen to the Land Speak, and you kind of alluded um, to kind of an almost spiritual component to the language. You talk about animism a lot. Uh, There's gods of almost everything in the Irish language. And at one point, you were down in Loch Gur and you ended up in a cottage. And an old man took you into a back room, shoved a chest out of the way, and said, stand on this stone here. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. And was that the first time you had an experience like yeah, that? Yeah. So that was, as you say, um, the, the geography was a bit tricky. I was on my way to Loch Gur and I'd left West Kerry. Um, but actually, I was still on the Dingle Peninsula. And... Um, I can't remember, was I, was I on purpose vague about where exactly it happened? Uh, yeah, but um, so it was the most unusual experience. He, he, he was, um, I might have, now I need to remember, did I, do I might have changed some things to try and hide his character, but he was, he was anyway, he, he was this old man, lived on his own in this house, and he brought me in. He had seen one of my TV programs, so he knew who I was, and he brought me in, and he told me to stand on a particular place. Uh, and I did, and it was in this bare room in the house. There was nothing else there, and it was up against the gable, where uh, where you normally expect a, a chimney breast to be or something. And I stood on it, and when I stood on it, I felt like a like a tornado of energy running through me. I just felt I could get sucked away into this very quickly. I just every my whole body just was thrilling with experience. With uh, no, how's the best way of describing it? It just felt alive and and bubbling. And but uncomfortable because it's not a feeling you normally have. And so I jumped out of the spot as quick as I could and just got out of that room and thought, what the hell happened? And he looked at me, he says, yeah, that's what I wanted you to see. And he said, the reason I stay in this house is because I feel I'm the guardian of this thing. I think it's a portal was what he said it was. He felt it was an energy source running, coming straight up from the soil, maybe a ley line or something. Now, he was rather an oddball and eccentric character. Um... I remember the local county council was looking after him and put new windows into his house. But I've looked for the house since. Like, I know, I know that area of West Kerry very well. And it's either, it's beside Riusk on the way to Ballyferreter. And it's either down two roads. And I looked, and um, this was about six months ago. And I, I couldn't find it. I didn't look all that hard. But I do know someone else. Ronan O'Snuddy of the band Keela was there in that house too. So about six months ago, I gave Ronan the book. I still haven't rung him or got onto him. So Ronan, do you remember that house? Did you ever stand on that thing? 
was I, you know, did I make up that? I mean, I know I didn't make it up, but um, there's definitely more to, to, for me to know about that story. And it just shows the exact, how ridiculous my life is, how chaotic it is at the moment. I'm busy with a million things that I haven't given Ronan a free copy of the book. I still haven't just rang him and said, what the hell was going on there? Do you know anything more? And what do we know? Can you remember the man's name? Because I can't. But do we know what happened to him? Like, like West Kerry is very, very small. It's very easy for me to track down. I have a sense he's probably dead or gone back to Britain. or like, But maybe he's still there. And maybe the spot is too. Mm. an entranceway and it was a normal thing in our Irish consciousness you know in Irish culture that there were portals or thresholds or ways of entering the other dimension and you talk about these kind of portal spaces in the book and I'm like eh, I'm not buying mm-hmm. this um, I'm, I'm a skeptic uh, mm-hmm. by nature um, but it feels like Irish literature uh, and mythology is suffused with places like this. You know, you think about Ushnock, right? The navel of Ireland, the hill of Ushnock, which is a fairly nondescript field in the middle of West Mead. <laughs> exactly. But uh, on the other hand, there's a rock right in their middle there, and people believe that that was the place where that fifth dimension. Mm-hmm if you will, right? You've got four dimensions, including time, and then you've got this fifth dimension of the other world, where the other world kind of pokes its head up into the world that we inhabit. Uh, was that what you think was going on there uh, in that cottage in West Kerry? I don't know. I mean, I, I much prefer your, you know, your questioning of it, your dubiousness, than just the, you know, the happy, clappy going along with everything. Because the only way we get to a better understanding by these things is if we question it. Um, and so I have a new book coming out next year, a kid's book called, it was meant to be called Portals and Thresholds of the Irish Landscape. But the publisher Gill mm-hmm. said, no, kids won't understand portals or threshold. In fact, I disagree. I think they'd, they'd love that. But um, I, don't, I think it's going to be called, I don't know, Enchanted Ireland. Or, so it definitely, <laughs> maybe it's not the, the book for you. I'd say it is. Just, no, I mean, I'm joking. But let me think. So I had this conversation with this Aboriginal elder I talked about, Tyson Young of Porta, a few, few days ago. And he was saying, I was telling him about this idea of the veil. And, you know, in, you didn't see my show, Ron and Gazim, no, the bread-making show. I talked there about the difference of counter and altar, where counter is a place or location and the opposite is altar, the other world. So Ireland was always comfortable with this idea, there being other dimensions around it. Um, they, they need not necessarily be actual portals or thresholds at all. And as Tyson Yungaporta said, Moncon, it's not a veil, you know that, like we, they call it a veil or a thin veil. It, there's no veil. Everything is everywhere. It's basically quantum physics. You, it's where you focus your mind. All of us have been in a fever or a delirium or gone to see or had a, you know, hallucinate or a drug experience. And we've seen the world through different lenses. Like what I experienced in that um, man's house of the buzzing through my body and this energy We've all felt it almost coming out of a swim, you know, where you suddenly are, yeah, where you're really in times of extreme or times of heightened sensation. The body can easily repeat those feelings and make you um, feel buzzed up or or, uh, alive or vibrant. So I think none of these things need to be as mysterious as an actual wormhole opening up into the universe, you know, opening up into the ground, bringing you to a different um, dimension. I think it's ways of extra, all of us who've suffered um, 
depression or mental anxiety or an anxiety or a, you know an anxiety attack know that you can immediately or even by holotropic breathing by doing an hour of breathing to drum work you find yourself somewhere very different i think all that's really all that's been said is that there is a, a rich internal imaginary world that is far more unlimited um and far more expansive and, and intense than the normal waking consciousness. And particularly, like I, I'm finding out, because I've been preparing to go and meet these Aboriginal people, phenomenal synchronicities and coincidences have been happening to me. And I've been seeing spirit animals, animals that are very important to the particular people I'm talking. They just appear in my life. And what the native people say, it's the dreaming. The dreaming has started. So... You know, that's a common concept among Native Americans, too. Um, it's just a different way of seeing the world. And yes, of course, we can put on our absolute rational reason mind and cut it all out and refuse to see it all. But I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think that's doing anyone any help. And I don't think it's a really strong basis. It could be all make-believe, but make-believe is more likely to be real than this petty, limited, rational mind that we try and cut ourselves in. When I introduced you on this episode, I called you, in my view, the most rooted man in Ireland. And I think one of the things that I try to explain to people is I think the lack of root rootedness in our society causes immense problems. Mm. I live in America. Let's say America doesn't have a sterling repu reputation in terms of mental health and uh, low violence. Mm -hmm. um, and to some degree, I believe uh, that is caused by the nature of America itself. People arrive here, they are uprooted, they are traumatized. And then when they're in America, a lot of times Americans will very proudly say, yeah, I just up sticks from New York and I went to live in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so even when they put down shallow roots, maybe not multiple generational roots, they remove themselves again. And I think a lot of the difficulties that are faced in America have a lot to do with that. Uh, and that kind of drives that quest by many Irish Americans to want to reconnect um, that sense of rootedness. Now, if you're in Ireland, you know, an American shows up and says to you, hi, I'm looking for my roots. You know, a lot of Irish people go like, stop, right? Yeah. But I think what we're starting to see now is, is that people are beginning to plug into it even in Ireland. Is that your spin and take on what's going on? Yes, yeah. I mean, the one, the one great thing about any indigenous culture, or any of those you know native cultures that we think of, either in, in in Australia, in America, in Canada, is that they have this sense of tradition, and you know who you are. You're part, like in Islam, the same in the Arab world, in Africa, you are part of a family, a clan. And it was this thing in the 21st century, in the end of the 20th century, it felt cloying to be part of a village or a clan. And yes, there's other people are putting into your business, but it's, you know, the opposite, this lonely, this loneliness and isolation is deeply um, unsettling. And every human will experience issues of challenge in their life. And unless they have a community, a strong community, a clan, a family to get them through, they fall. Um, you know, between the rails and there's no one to pick them up. And so, like, again, 
I, I'm in one way I'm the wrong person to talk to because I was I'm sure if there are different incarnations in life I'm sure I've had very many like messy dirty incarnations but this life of mine is incredibly easy as I said I was born with this gorgeous loving voices in my head everything goes well for me I just I'm like sheltered and looked after in the world wherever I go now as I said I'm sure that hasn't that I'm probably I don't know if there's such a thing as incarnations, but I'm just, I'm fortunate. So I could probably live a life of absolute isolation and still come out on top. But most people, we need help. And um, America doesn't offer that. You know, if I mean, if you have a health problem, if you have a mental health or a physical health, you're a mess, you're screwed, you know. It's just as a, and also there's that demand in the States and to a degree in Canada to perform, to be your very, very best self. They don't accept the idea that, we can just sometimes coast along or sometimes we don't need to excel. Sometimes we can just be us. So I think it is very, very hard to be human in the United States. Um, and it's a wonderful thing that, yes, yeah, so many people are beginning to question that, the, 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 the superficiality of an individual world and think, actually, there's a lot of sense in being connected to ancestors or clan or culture. Yeah. So I'm going to wind down with one final question about the language. There's a lot been made about actors, Irish actors, and the BAFTA, at the BAFTA Awards over in England, speaking Irish on the red carpet. Um, we have a Oscar-nominated Irish language film for the first time uh, coming up in this upcoming Oscars on Colin Kuhn, and we were fortunate enough to host um, Colin Barade and Cleona Nicrulli at the you know in October of last year and talk about the film. To what degree does popular culture uh, is going to drive this improvement of the status of the language in Ireland? Do you see this as another component in what's going on? Yeah, the linguists say that the future of a language is down to adolescent girls probably adolescents in general, but it just seems to be, that's, I think it's, it's accepted by most linguists, whether a language will survive and how well and how fluent it will be if that lesson, just because I think, I don't know why, but I think it's girls because they talk more and they use the language in new ways and they keep it fluid. Um, but it's all, our, the future of the Irish language is all up to young people now. Um, and for them, they need to find something that they can identify with, something that will enrich them, something that will look relevant and engaging and alluring to them. And that's never been, we've never had that in Irish. Um, we, you know, we had, I think in the 1980s, we had Le the Hothouse Flowers and Liam O'Mwainley, which looked like this one glimmer of hope. But there was no one else other than Liam O'Mwainley and the Hothouse Flowers. And Liam O'Mwainley has had a lot on his shoulders for, you know, four generations now. And he's looking a bit shook, he's looking a bit old. Uh, is no longer quite as much of a, a sex symbol as he was. And then came Keela, this other trad band mixing trad and pop, and they did well. But it's only when there's a lot of different people doing a lot of creative things. And again, the key thing started all this was Television Aguelga, when they were translating SpongeBob SquarePants and Snoopy Doo and Scooby Doo into Irish. Those kids who are now going to do new things, they were raised on these cartoons in Irish. They have none of the hang-ups of Irish being connected to the famine or to do with an old woman storyteller by the fire who's watched her children die in the Blasket Islands. Um, so it's yeah a key element for the birth of the language is that it is among the youth culture. And we haven't seen that yet. But as you pointed out, we've seen some signs, positive signs that things might be moving in that direction. 
Markhan, we're getting to that point in the podcast where we introduce our Seamus plug. So what do you have to plug for us? I know you're a busy man and have many projects going on. Uh, what should we look out for or how should we engage? I mean, my books aren't available in America yet. They sort of, you know, they sometimes are if someone buys them from Ireland, but that can be expensive. I think kenny's.ie is probably the cheapest or otherwise mayobooks.ie is always the best way for me, but it's expensive. At some point, my books will be, they'll be published in Britain and Australia next year and they'll be published in, in, in the States at some point. Um, every day on Instagram, I give out, or every second day, I give out an Irish word. Um, I, I play, a, I post a recording by a fisherman of a, a sea word or a coastal word that gives you beautiful words that give insight to the richness of our traditions, of our coastal tradition. Um, I probably, you know, this time last year, I was in doing a tour of the East Coast of North America from Memphis up to Toronto. Um, for about two months, yeah, two months, seven weeks with my show, Iranagazine, which is a show, Bread and Butter. I bake sourdough bread and the audience churn butter. Um, I've done that all over Ireland and in Paris and Bell and Brussels and London. But I probably, I mightn't do it in Ireland again, um, but I will be touring it to the west coast of North America in maybe October time this year. So I'll probably start in Vancouver and then head south to Van to Seattle go over to Missoula, Montana, for some reason, and then San Francisco, LA, maybe San Diego. It depends wherever there are big enough communities that will take it. Um, I'll do that, and I'll meanwhile be in working, meeting up with and probably engaging with indigenous peoples and going along doing that. Um, yeah, that's about, that's about it. We do this Irish language course called SCARTA, but I don't know when the next one will be. The, new, the latest one, it's a nine-week online Irish language course that's just begun. Um, this week. And I have the pleasure of actually participating in this in School Scarta. So I'm like many, many people starting to engage uh, a little deeper and really enjoying uh, the first session that actually took place today. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, it's fun. Like the, <laughs> you have you just done the first session. You're probably a bit bewildered. It, it, it's a lovely course. It finds its own feet um after a while and probably what we'll do is convert it and make it into there's a word in evergreen course where you you know you don't need to turn up live to the code the course <laughs> but i'll be keeping on doing a million different things with the irish language so there'll be a new book um i have these little handmade books that are made on Ackle island of particular beautiful words one is called don agron and nasty words for people i have seen that and i love it yeah yeah uh, I'm working just to this evening on a new project. It's, uh, I don't think I'll reveal it. No, it's another little handmade book. It's gore. Well, it won't be handmade this time. It'll be a little baby book and they sort of, they're more art projects than, than books. Um, but yeah, there's a book. So this year, th that book on portals and thresholds and next year, there'll be a book on Ireland and India. And then the year after that, there'll be Ireland and indigenous cultures. Uh, it's ridiculous. The man's a TV series on Holy Wells coming out probably in a few months. Oh, and the most beautiful thing, another free thing, is the Almanac of Ireland. It's my podcast. It is gorgeous. Like, it's, um, it's only, I think, 26 episodes up, but I have another 26 episodes almost fully edit edited. And we'll start RTE, you know, the National Broadcaster will start showing old recordings of the podcast, airing them of the Almanac of Ireland in the next few weeks or months. And um, definitely the new series will be up by June. But I urge you to listen to those. They're beautifully produced by Colette. Um, Claire Kinsella. And so it is, I just chase after, 
I go on a search for things that really interest me, really. Um, holy wells or magical stories or beautiful bits of nature. It's a bit like the books, a bit like, as you said, Thursday Words for Fields or um, Listen to the Land Speak, the other book. Um, or that other book I have called Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers and Other Words for Nature, which uh, is about the insights the Irish language gives into nature through its words for the natural world. Anyway, you'll, you'll, everything you'll find on moncom.com, but there's plenty for free. On Instagram, you'll find loads of sea words. On the Almanac of Ireland, they're all for free. You'll, see, you'll find some amazing um, episodes of that podcast. And with that, I would like to thank you, Monacong, for coming on Irish Stew on behalf of our listeners. Um, as you can probably tell, uh, Monacong is a, a bundle of energy. There's usually about four or five, maybe 10 projects going at the same time. And we really look forward to uh, seeing your work released in the wild. I will say I'm a huge fan of the Almanac of Ireland. So if listeners uh, have not engaged with that, I strongly recommend it. And um, I will leave you back to the peace of your Westmeath homestead. And thank you. Thank you, Martin. And I suppose just to say, although I'm not bringing Ron Zine to the East Coast of America, I will be in New York and that area. Um, we're either giving lectures and I have a new whole show now called On Sale Ella. It's me talking about the other world with a, lo- a rake of musicians, a very talented musicians, Robbie Perry and Miles O'Reilly and Simon O'Reilly and beautiful videos. So I'll probably be bringing that to New York, I suppose, this autumn time too. So I will be back with different shows. We will look forward to that, and there will be a big file to waiting for you. Mavina Boyakas Martin, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Hey, it's Martin. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Monacon. I'll be back with John in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, if you enjoy the podcast, can you leave a review on your podcast app of choice? Looking forward to joining you again for another great episode of Irish Stew. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums. Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Listener.